Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode in our Biotech Decoded podcast series. I'm Yaron Warber, Biotech Analyst at Cowan, and I'm super excited to be joined by Deborah Dunshire in this episode, Biotech from A to Z, to discuss her insights from running global biotechs and pharmaceutical companies, her experience as a woman executive in the US and Europe, and how growing up in South Africa during apartheid impacted her life's journey. Deborah has more than 30 years of clinical, commercial, and international management experience in biotech and pharma, primarily in the fields of oncology and CNS. She's been president and CEO of Lundbeck since September 2019, and was previously president and CEO of Exuite Pharmaceuticals, Farm Pharmaceuticals, and Millennium Pharmaceuticals. Deborah, always great to see you, and thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you, and it's great to be doing this, right, as we come off summer and and go into the next close of the year. So, you know, for us, um, this is really a, a great time. And what I'm really excited about with this episode, again, we're calling it Biotech from A to Z with you, is that there's so much we can talk about. We can talk about you've run technology-based US biotechs, both private and public. You run Millennium, which is commercial and tech, and you're running uh, Lundbeck, which is a global, you know, commercial company focusing on neurology. And I've known you now for what, about 15, 17 years? Maybe even longer. <laughs> Maybe even longer since, since I was a baby, essentially. Yes, yes, out of, right out of kindergarten. <laughs> right out of kindergarten. So you were very successful in your roles, uh, both at Millennium, and then you ran smaller, very innovative entrepreneurial sort of biotechs in, in Cambridge, or, which essentially were private. What did you harvest from those experiences that is now so instrumental at running Lundbeck? So I think the smaller companies teach you how to do things in more of a, a quick way. You really learn about prioritization. Uh, you learn how to, what is the most efficient path to get something done. And you learn that the bells and whistles are valuable, but you've got to know what's the most important thing because you only have resources for the most important thing. I think the, the passion that goes around uh, startup companies and those smaller companies is just a delight. Um, and you want to keep that and you want to keep uh, reinvigorating that as the company gets bigger. Um, I always say some of the smaller companies are a, like a small boat. You can really feel the ocean. Uh, when it gets to be a bigger company, you feel it less, but you've got to reconnect people to the science, to the purpose, uh, to keep that spirit alive. Yeah. You know, I have little canoes everywhere and I constantly talk about to my team here and it was actually more instrumental when I was at a, at a company. On the operating side, I talk about the importance of being in a little canoe. You feel every ripple when you're small and you got to row together and you got to know where you're going. And it's not always, it's a lot easier said than done. So in, in your experiences, you talked about focus, you talked about the passion, but focus. And what's the hardest thing for executives that are coming from big companies when they go into a small entrepreneurial, technologically based private biotech where they don't have the resources and they need to focus? I think the, 
one of the hardest things for executives coming from big companies is not to be surrounded by a staff. And so having to think about things that you did earlier in your career where you were the product manager or something like that, you might be the CEO, but damn it, you might be the person who knows the market research firm to use and who knows how that study might have to be structured. And so you have to roll up your sleeves a whole lot more. And some people are, find that um, a little overwhelming and don't feel as good about themselves when they have to do something that they did a long time ago in their career. So the mindset of a person who's shifting from big to small, some people can make that shift and some people really can't. And that's, so that's one of the things that I would focus upon. So number one, it's, it's getting um, executives from big companies to sort of scale down, scale down and scale back up without having a lot of staff, having to roll up their sleeves. What about with a technological-based company, there's so many ways you can go. And then how do you really establish a strategy and a pathway to value creation without getting too inundated with extraneous opportunities, which constantly take you off course? <laughs> what a great question. I think one of the most valuable things in those startup companies where you're really dealing with the technology is having that great board. Um, and it's often your, your investors, your VC investors, and they've seen the movie, right? Mm -hmm. So I think they can be a, a great sounding board and a great value uh, because some of the, sometimes your scientists are just so passionate about the technology that you can get drawn down various pathways. And, and of course, when, when you look at any of the companies who really grew from those very tiny to being very big, it wasn't the original idea that ever got them there. Mm -hmm. So there is a need to be open-minded to, to different paths. So the question is when, mm. how many paths do you, do you prosecute at once? And that's where that partnership between me as a, a, an operating executive, because that was really my background, together with people who've really seen how companies incubate and grow and, and that dialogue between board, um, particularly the VC investors who I really admired and, and liked working with, it was a good back and forth. Yeah. What, when, when you're thinking about your experience at Millennium, you, you joined and obviously the company became a commercial company and a global company, well, a US-based company with uh, obviously Jensen Jensen was the partner, XUS. How was that different than running Lundbeck? So I think the, the partnership was very central. So we were really focused on one commercial product and a pipeline um, with multiple commercial products in multiple jurisdictions you are constantly thinking about managing somewhat different portfolio because Lundbeck's portfolio in different countries is actually quite different uh, because we're not that very large company. We're still a company that's forming and expanding. So we've got our China portfolio really doesn't look the same as our US portfolio. And so you, you have to be able to look at the products in their marketplace and you're dealing with quite a wide range uh, of different portfolios in different countries. And then when we're starting up, we've just started up in, in Japan. We have licensed our products in Japan before. Now we have our own commercial footprint 
in Japan, and we're partnered for that first launch with Takeda. And so we're learning. So for Millennium, we were, we were learning too. We were learning how to be a commercial company in the US, uh, but we didn't, we didn't have to expand that and replicate it out into other markets. And I think that that's what we're doing as Lundbeck in that next stage of evolution of a company. So you talked about on the commercial on the commercial scale going global um, and how strategically how do you do that at Millennium obviously that was less of a of a priority. What about culture, um, oncology technology company versus a, a neurology established neurology company that's innovating, and also U.S. versus European, you know, based on culture and locale. Core, it's very much the same. It's about people who are passionate to make a difference. And the unmet needs in oncology are incredibly high. And the joy of working in, uh, in Millennium for me was working together with people who were so passionate about the transformation in oncology. I also appreciated that at Novartis Oncology. In, in Lundbeck, it's all about how do we make a change in brain health? And mm. Lundbeck's been very successful in psychiatry. The needs in mental health are so big. Mm. And Lundbeck's been very successful there over many years and very focused there. So we have a cadre of people who are passionate about that mission to restore brain health. So that's common. The purpose and motivation that we have the privilege to work within our industry is is common, although it obviously it's different in different therapeutic areas, but that's a commonality. What's different, I think, in, in the US ethos is there's a lot more focus on you know that, that short-term quarter when you're a fully publicly traded company. Lundbeck mm -hmm. is a European company and it has a European ethos, it's also majority foundation owned. Mm -hmm. So that has a that brings a different culture, a different uh, framework of thinking about how shall this company be created for 50 years from now? Mm -hmm. You actually have that long-term vision that you don't necessarily have in not only a US company, but a fully publicly traded company. Yeah. We spend a lot of time in Europe. One of the biggest differences I found moving from the US to Europe was the sustainability focus mm -hmm. from not only your, your total focus on ESG, both the environment, how we're thinking about the climate, the focus on, on the social good of the organization and the governance is somewhat different uh, for European and, and US companies. But that focus on sustainable activity to contribute to the sustainable development goals to reduce your carbon footprint as a company is an everyday part of your thinking mm. and planning as an executive here that really hadn't been a part uh, of my experience up until then. Yeah. So ESD is actually, you know, really important for Cowan and we've rolled an ESG uh, product. And one of the reasons we actually rebranded uh, this uh, podcast series away from biotech external innovation to biotech decoded is we also wanted to focus on, on ESG. So maybe I'll, let me dive into that. I know it was a little bit of a, a tangent here. 
when you think environmental, you're thinking sustainability, you th you're thinking production, minimal, minimizing energy usage, uh, carbon footprint, um, recycling materials, anything that I'm missing on environmental, or is that more straightforward, let's say, than social and governance in terms of getting your hands around? It's all of that. And then the question is, how do you do your business and how do you cause your suppliers? So we work with scope one, obviously your production and your business, scope two, your sales reps, your fleets, you know, everything you use to do your business. And then scope three is all your suppliers. Mm. So how do you, in your RFPs, make move your suppliers along? Mm. Um, so, you know, that's an interesting broadening, but it but that you you cover all the bases, but it's that horizontal across all your business including your suppliers that you need to think about yeah and, it, and you can probably drive your own business easier in many ways in deciding how to influence your suppliers yes to align and of course you're in many ways tied at the hip to each other so you can't just move away easily to another supplier who might be more esg focused right yeah and, and you can't just say well we're good when you're just basically outsourcing your carbon footprint mm. to suppliers. You you really do have to be active across the, the chain. Yeah. So how do you think about social and the social responsibility? And of course, that could be so broad. And how do you measure that? For us, we obviously, there's the access to medicines is part of our thinking about the, the impact on communities. So when I think about social, I think about how are we an actor for good in the communities where we operate, and then in the communities where we don't operate, low and some of the middle-income countries, how do we create access to medicines, particularly for mental health? So mm. it's yes, it's our core business, and then there are the pieces that are not that are part of our business, but not in medicines like, for example, parity of access for mental health? How do we become an actor in policy setting in different countries to drive parity of access? How do we drive reduction of stigma in the countries where we operate as part of our contribution to the social fabric? And then, of course, there's the uh, creating the diverse, inclusive workplace and what does that mean mm. in China what does it mean in Israel what does it mean and it means different things in different countries so it is a it needs to be a nuanced approach to uh, diversity and how do you pull it down from the top all the way through <laughs> so there are many parameters for social that I I think we ask our companies to engage also in their local community mm. how do how do you become that forceful in your local community what which part of the social focus is tough toughest to implement i'd say that it there's more work to be done in diversity and inclusion because that requires moving people's uh, learning along in things like unconscious bias mm -hmm. uh, and and it requires yes the challenge is different in different places but how do you set baselines how do you set goals 
and how do you keep measuring and and seeking improvement yeah that, that's that's a huge focus with, within cowan as well so I, I feel like i know a little bit what you're going through but at the same time you have a global local event which is definitely very interesting i mean the culture in israel and the culture in china just you know jumping off on the two you mentioned are extremely different and so what that means to them on the social and where they are on their social thinking relative to let's say europe and the us is far different right so you you have to start where you are and make progress forward what about when you think of governance what, what comes to mind and what are you focusing on interesting you know europe is quite different in terms of corporate governance and then within europe there's some differences that you know in denmark as a for example um we have that the ceo cannot be a board member mm. so that's by law uh, is not allowed um we have employee representatives on the board so you have to have 50% the number of employee representatives as you do uh, independent board members so you know i'm working with four employee representatives who are board members of lundbeck mm. and so they're exposed to succession discussions for the executive management and they may report four levels down in the in the organization so you know it's a very different level of transparency we we have unions um so you know working with the unions making the collective bargaining agreements um you there's a lot of things european regulation that we need to look at we've got esg regulation coming out of the european commission mm. very shortly that makes sarbanes oxley look like a walk in the park mm. uh, for for implementation mm. and so there's there's a there's a lot of focus on data privacy with gdpr in a very different uh, level of maybe focus and seriousness and reporting mm. um that than there is in the us so you do have to understand where you're working and what regulations drive you yeah how the, the employee representatives who get on the board how are those chosen every 4 years there's an employee election people can canvass their their colleagues and it's based on the number of votes obtained hmm. and they cycle um, every 4 years every 4 years every 4 yeah. years okay so they're not up for re-election so to speak no they can stand for re-election after 4 years um but they are not they're not re-elected every year our yeah. independent board members are elected every year interesting that definitely creates a, a a phenomenal dynamic with a foundation on top of it which is not not similar to most companies certainly us based companies yeah it's a it's a it's been a, a real learning anytime anytime i've moved to different countries and i've i've lived and worked in a in a number it's such a learning and growth experience because it challenges your assumptions about how things are and and should and you have to learn to lead in a different way in a different culture and denmark's no different you, you, i have to learn again mm. um how to lead and the danes are phenomenal in terms of their command of english so we work in english but and so you make the mistake of thinking it's very similar initially and it really isn't there is mm. a very you can't think of europe as one 
um, because Denmark says different from Italy, you know, that there's nothing really common about those cultures just because they're both part of Europe. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, a lot of the podcast until now has been about mergers and acquisitions or deals. And at Lundbeck, you have started doing more M&A and doing more collaborations. And you've done them at Millennium, you've done them in Novartis, you've done them in many of your prior roles. What separates companies and collaborations that go well from those that don't? So I'd say you'd separate out acquisitions from other types of partners. So if you're if you're licensing or partnering, I'd say the fundament is trust and communication. And we've been partnered with Otsuka on a couple of, of products for 10 years. That partnership has been, and it's not that we've always agreed but there's been a very strong level of respect, mutual respect and communication, a very disciplined calendar of uh, regular meetings and you know, layered uh, governance meetings that mm -hmm. people take very seriously. And I think when you have a, a disagreement, you know, working in a disciplined way to navigate to a common good and a common understanding and Japanese companies are very good at being partners mm. because they do th think about enlarging the pie together versus winner taking all. Mm. Um, so it, it, it makes for a pleasant partnership. In an acquisition, I think the, the key, one of the key su success factors is being intentional about the creation of the company culture that needs to be the going forward company mm. and making sure it's clear and onboarding people to it and then being also clear that people who don't onboard need to leave. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think a company that allows a swirl and an unclarity and a clash of cultures to persist will ultimately not be successful with that acquisition. And within Lundbeck, is there a certain level of forced attrition every year or no? No. Based on performance, no. Yeah. We, we do have, obviously, a performance-driven uh, culture, but we don't have the old GE philosophy of, you know, bottom 10% out. We act on performance during the year. It's never sort of once, one time in the year. Yeah, you, you manage for success. Yeah. Let me maybe shift over and I want to focus a little bit on, on your personal journey and your, and your personal career, both as a woman and obviously growing up in South Africa during apartheid. L let me actually start with that. How was growing up at, at that time period really impacted you as a person and your life's journey and as an executive? Yes, I think you, you, you grow up not questioning as a child the fact that there's, you know, there's white people who have education and access to things. And then there's black people who operate in your life as, you know, servants, as gardeners, and, and, and you don't question it. And then as you, you know, get into your teenage years and you start to say, why is this so? And then, you know, gradually, at least for me, it was a dawning of this is, this is not Right, and you look at the history of the of the continent. Say, wait a second, there's there's something wrong here. And when I look at it, I I see the 
absolute waste of human potential that actually is undermining those countries even today. Mm. Because the power and the resource and the, the, the possibility to create value in Southern Africa is so high mm. that the countries are not where they could have been had they been able to utilize the, the, the combined intellectual capacity and power of their whole population. Mm. So that for me is, is a driver for eliminating and acting uh, relentlessly to ensure that we do access all the talent and that we, we have diverse workforces, we do create inclusive workforces because that loss of potential creates a smaller pie. It's, it plays a short game. Mm. And if you really want to expand and be able to, to harvest full potential, you need everybody on board. You know, I, I recently traveled, I was in South America actually for the first time, and I've traveled to Latin America. And I think a lot of the commonalities, these are all areas that were colonized historically. And mm -hmm. I, I was shocked and maybe I shouldn't have been that surprised, but it definitely dawned on me, I was in Colombia about three weeks ago, how the culture still is emanates from, in many parts, slavery in that area, and obviously colonization, and it's completely has weighted down the, the whole continent. There's, there's no question, you feel that completely in Latin America. What, where, where is South Africa, in your view now, on the journey toward recovery? I mean, it, it sounds like it still is in very much a stepping stone path. It, it is. And when I, when I look back at the, the days of you know, Nelson Mandela as the, as the president, the hope was enormous. I think some of the subsequent leaders have, have not achieved that high standard of, of leadership. And I think when corruption comes into a country, it doesn't matter which geography, ethnicity, it's poisonous. And that has been part of South Africa's more mid-past culture. Um, I'm hopeful for the current leader. I think a lot of Cyril Ramaphosa, mm -hmm. and I, I hope that he can root out that corruption and, and put South Africa back onto that path. But you know, I was actually born in Zimbabwe mm -hmm. and Zimbabwe is a country that has been ruined mm -hmm. by tri tribalism, and corruption mm. and unfortunately it's not on a good path deborah you're one of the leaders in biotech as a woman right and 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 there aren't a lot of women who are running global pharma companies these days right there's a handful only it's increasing but it's not where it needs to be and it's probably not where it's going to be in 20 years or 10 years from now what has been you know your experience building your career as a woman in the industry and how is it different now than it was, you know, 10, 20 years ago? Well, I think different now is that there are more women at senior levels. So when I was coming up through the industry, I was very, very frequently the only female in any mm -hmm. given uh, meeting room. And so that that's no longer the case that you would be the only. I, when I was first sat on boards, I was the only woman. Now I'm, you know, in most boards, there's at least two, if not three women. So we, we are making progress in that way. When I think back, I'd say two things. One, one is of myself, 
the having the confidence to not hold back and mm-hmm. and to be able to push back on people who want you to you know sit down and be quiet in a way mm-hmm. you know fulfill a, a more traditional female role so that's that's within me i think it comes thanks to my father but the other place i'm really grateful to are all the men i worked for because i never have worked for a woman i've mm-hmm. always worked for men mm-hmm. and those men were the people who offered me opportunity who you know pushed me out of my comfort zone so those people and mm. you know my first boss in south africa roger trithel david epstein at novartis you know are people who gave me opportunity to grow and i think working you you're always going to in any job need the support of your your boss to be able to grow and and mm-hmm. move forward so working for great bosses has been something that has helped me a lot yeah so did, did you i mean it sounds like you found mentors right did, did you feel lonely and was it easy to find mentors and and have good conversations with them my mentors have pretty much been my bosses mm-hmm. so you're you, you know sometimes people talk about finding a mentor and I don't, I don't think, I, I think your boss is going to be that person. Right. So work for the right people, right? So if you're, if you're working for somebody who really isn't about building all the people who report to them, not just women, but, but who really is interested in developing people, then you should change jobs and find a boss who is interested in developing their people. Mm. Um, I think that I've also stayed in touch with people I've worked with before. I think about Thomas Ebeling at Novartis or Jerry Carabellis at Novartis. Mm. Who, even after they left, I could call up and, and bounce an idea off. So maintaining relationships uh, with people that you admire and who've, who've known you, you get some really great advice. And you don't have to have long you know, hourly meetings every month, just even, you know, I remember calling Jerry Carabellis about, you know, one job change after many years after we had, we'd never worked together and we hadn't really spoken for a number of, of years. It took about 20 minutes and he was willing to give me that time and it was just so helpful. Mm. So there are plenty of people who can be a resource. And I think about rather than a mentor, which implies sort of a single person, a library of people who know you in different contexts that you can draw on um, at at different times. Yeah. Did the same rules apply to to men and women or, or did you find that they were different? I think they're pretty much the same in that score. What is easier, I believe, for men is that there are more, or certainly in those, you know, the the 80s and 90s, there are more opportunities for men earlier in their careers to interact with men later in their careers. Mm. And there's always, there's a little bit more in some circumstances, standoffishness between men and women. And I think we, we kind of need to get past that. 
Hmm. Uh, but of course, in a in a workplace, there's going to be that interaction, which is why I've it's been the mentorship through bosses or bosses bosses that I've built those mentoring relationships. Yeah, it is interesting because we we hear that a lot um, when we ask this question. There there have been different roles in the sense that there's just different social interaction that has made it you know easier or harder for women over time to sort of break in or you know naturally have those those engagements and conversations and and connections so to speak and now we're beginning to hear more about how things are swinging to the other side to in a little bit um which is also an issue because at the end it's all about connectivity as to how you develop cultures and make connections and, and, and move on in your career younger women who are beginning to go through their career or mid-stage of their career, what do they crave the most in terms of feedback or opportunities for progression? What, what tools do they need or connectivity do they need to really make it to the next level? I mean, first of all, the ambition. Second of all, the willingness to, to do what it takes. I have counseled women before that, you know, if, if you've say you can't move because of your family or you know you're the caregiver for you for your mother that which mm -hmm. is a very legitimate point of view you you need to understand that may may bring limitations right, right. so so then choose the types of companies that don't need you to do that for advancement they need to be willing to seek out and and hear the feedback too mm -hmm. and willing to take on stretch assignments one of the things that i'd counsel women a lot about is the tendency for women to want mastery before they move on to something else mm -hmm. and the tendency for men to say hey i've done this you know 85 percent is great it's time to add more we don't need to get to the hundred percent and there, there's there's a generalization but it's it's a generalization because it's common yeah. uh, and so sometimes women are, are say well I, I need a bit more experience and it's like well maybe maybe you don't maybe you need to take this this step maybe you need to put up your hand women will tend to want to be noticed men are prepared to put themselves forward hmm. so there's some strategies that I think women need to hear and learn. How is the role of women changing or the opportunity set for women changing in biotech? It doesn't only apply to women, it applies to any minority mm. that role models are important that because what a role model is and, and you're a role model at a higher level in an organization no matter who you are. But if people see somebody who looks like them, there is a much higher willingness to believe they can, they can get there. Mm. And you, you mm. see it in, in sport, for instance. You find a, a little country that has suddenly a breakthrough tennis player or a breakthrough swimmer. And don't you know, you know, five years, 10 years down the line, there's there's a ton of other yeah. swimmers that come out of that country mm -hmm. because people then believe they can do it so I do think that as more women are in roles or more people of color 
are in more senior roles. Any minority, the fact that there are role models will in, inspire confidence in that younger generation of that minority to say, yeah, it's possible for me. Mm. That's why I think diverse leadership teams, diverse boards are so important because if people cannot see somebody like them in a leadership position, it creates an, uh, a barrier yes. for progress. It's hard to see the path without yeah. it. Yeah. Perhaps what three advice would you give minorities and women who, who are starting in biotech? I think you alluded to some of them, but here to prioritize three things to keep in mind for them. I don't care who you are, whether you're a minority or not. Love your work. Focus on the enjoyment of your work and the career progression is somewhat secondary, right? Mm -hmm. That that's the first the first thing. People often ask me, did you plan, you know, how did how did you plan your path to be a CEO? And it's like, that's a joke. I never planned to be in business, never mind being a CEO. But I just kept doing things that I really enjoyed and I kept wanting to learn new things. Mm. And so that outreach for gosh that would be interesting and then some and somebody saying to me gee could you do this job and me saying well I don't know anything about that but hey if you think I can I'll give it a go so the, the openness to learn the openness to try something that you might fail at hmm. is the path to growth so you you do need that resilience to say yeah I'm, I, it's not always going to be successful but but the path to growth is to try what you haven't done before yeah take risks yeah they, they could lead to failing up essentially yeah you know one of my favorite quotes is is a churchill quote and he said success is not final failure is not fatal the courage it's the courage to continue that counts yes that's that's fantastic. I'm going to have to use that at some point. Let me ask you, and we're going to go into my favorite part of each podcast, and it's really getting to know the person. I think I feel like with you, we've getting to know you a lot. Obviously, there's so much to talk about with you. But tell me one thing about you that no one knows. I think I'd have to pick on way back when in my my teenage years, I was a figure skater. Oh. And I figure skated for my state in South Africa. And ice dance was my specialty. Wow. And, and how did you do? I, I was a state champion, uh, but not a national champion. Wow. That's fantastic. That's pretty impressive. I, I will say it wasn't the biggest sport in South Africa. <laughs> we've heard. But I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, we've heard different things. People have been rockers that you don't expect, and uh, people are global sailors. It's always great to see what everybody does in their in their life. What's your dream job if you weren't running a Lundbeck and you weren't a biotech executive? What would you have done in your life? Well, if you if you go back to the beginning, when I was growing up, what I really, really wanted to be was an astronaut. Mm. And I, I still love, I love astrophysics. I, you know, these the James Webb telescope photos coming in and yeah. just seeing, you know, what is what is out there is it still inspires me and and creates excitement you know i think about i, I listen to stephen hawking i know that he's passed away now podcasts 
the, the fascination of our cosmos is, hmm. is still a part of what is, I find incredibly interesting. Yeah. So I would have been an astronaut. Yeah. I just, my, my nephew actually is a rocket scientist. He works for NASA, literally is a rocket scientist. And Lucky I just him. finished reading uh, Einstein by Walter Isaacson, which was terrifically interesting to actually hear about the theory of relativity, which to be honest, I've never really dove into in my life to really understand the four-dimensional nature of the universe and his contribution to humanity. Yeah. I, I never quite understood how many contributions he's had over so long and what he actually got the Nobel Prize for relative to what he should have gotten it for. But it's, it's super interesting to see what happened historically. It's super interesting to think about that brain that he could sit and just in, envisage mm. that and then cr create the mathematics that proved it. Uh, I find it astounding. Deborah, it's always great to see you. Really, really great. interesting and really appreciate your time. Great to see you. It's Fabulous to have a chat. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's our pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.